Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. When I wake up in my own pink world, I get up out of bed and wave to my homegirls. Hey, Bobby. Hey. She's so cool. All dolled up, just playing chess by the pool. Come on, we got important things to do. Well, yeah, we do have important things to do. We're going to do the whole Barbenheimer thing today. It's going to be great because, you know, it's everything's just great, really, right now. I feel great. Uh, and uh, let me tell you who the panel We have an expanded panel today. Barbenheimer was really too big for a three-person panel. We needed more people than that. Let me tell you who's here. Uh, she's the co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications, a freelance writer, and the body model for the original irrepressible thoughts of death Barbie, Rebecca <laughs> Castellani. How did you know that? Ladies and gentlemen, he went to the public library today and checked out all of the books about trucks and horses. James Hanley, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. Uh, he's a stand-up comedian, writer, the host of the Nobody Asked Sean podcast. And as soon as he learn- learns all the words to that Indigo Girls song, he is out of here. Uh, Sean Murray is with us today. And ladies and gentlemen, she was never going to watch The Godfather anyway, so it doesn't really matter, does it? Carol Payne, Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, and dancer, uh, and the founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. So yes, this is the panel. Uh, what we did was we did the Barbenheimer thing, and we didn't do it all last weekend the way you're supposed to. Uh, but uh, one way or another, we watched Barbie, and then we watched Oppenheimer. Just to give you a little context here. Um, well, Barbie is the number one movie in the country. It has grossed $495 million worldwide. Uh, last weekend's domestic box office, Barbie uh, clocked in at about $162 million. And Oppenheimer, a three-hour movie about an atomic scientist, grossed $82 million at domestic box office last weekend. There was obviously quite a bit of synergy going on. But James... I think we have to sort of begin here, and you've been in the you're in the movie business for a really long time, in the showing of movies, the exhibiting of movies business. I mean, it's weird to imagine that these two movies could have synergy. They come out of different studios, Universal and, and Warner Brothers. Typically, you know, Universal's kind of ticked off that Barbie's going to open the same weekend as Oppenheimer because it's going to suck up all the oxygen. And just something happened that, I don't know, I, I feel like it's just not anywhere even in the playbook uh, of, of the film distribution business. But give me your take on all that. Well, I think you're exactly right. It, it isn't in the playbook. Most of the time, I think the studios calculate their audiences and they think, oh, well, nobody's nobody who is going to see Oppenheimer is going to go and see Barbie. And so this way we can stand with audiences and go on different tracks. But I think something happened here. I, I don't think anybody actually planned it, but I maybe we'll find out later that some some movie industry genius managed to get the idea out there of concatenating those two movies. But 
Um, I think that the studios themselves are busy trying to figure out how can we do this again, um, because it really has sparked a, an incredible interest in coming back to theaters and actually comparing the theater experience with uh, the longstanding enthusiasm for streaming, which I think is beginning to wane now. And people have really discovered something, a social issue as well as the technical side of things. There's something happened. The, there was a crack in the universe and things changed. Um, I don't think they quite know what happened yet. Yeah, no, I don't think they do either. And and Rebecca, there's another aspect to this too, I think, which is that these this was a blockbuster movie weekend that did not involve superheroes. And mm-hmm. and in fact, there's sort of a way in which in the case of Barbie, and this is not an original point by me, but you know, Barbie is sort of blissfully not exactly worried about how everything in Barbie world works, you know? I mean, I was listening to the guys on the watch and they were saying like, you know, if this was part of the Infinity Stones MCU series, <laughs> they'd really have to meticulously explain where everybody and everything came from. And there's sort of a relief to having the kind of frivolity uh, of Barbie and also the kind of non-cape superheroes stuff going on in Oppenheimer. I mean, maybe we're, we need that breath of fresh air too. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Part of the reason I've kind of gone off going to the movies, sort of the whole COVID debacle, was it just felt like the same things were always out. It's another Marvel movie. It's another, you know, we're revisiting the Star Wars IP for the 18th time. So both of these movies, despite one drawing from historical fact and one drawing on, you know, one of the oldest toys in the game, they felt fresh. They felt new. I think that juxtaposition was sort of born of the internet. I think part of what Barbie has done so masterfully is kind of capture the internet's love of irreverence in a way that wasn't cringy and that sort of snowballed. And I think Oppenheimer really kind of benefited from the, uh, you know, making lemonade out of lemon situation where they're able to piggyback on some of this wonderful organic marketing that Barbie did. But it just feels different. It feels like this isn't an event to go see I don't really ever feel that way with movies anymore where I want to like dress up and participate in something larger than the act of just like sitting in a theater when I'm anonymous and, you know, it's a quiet, cool reprieve from the summer heat. This felt like the summer event. It was it felt like the cultural high watermark. So I wasn't going to miss out on it. And I feel like, you know, the box office numbers indicate that everyone else feels the same way. All right. Because we got a lot to cover here. I'm just going to transition over to the movie itself. And uh, we're going to talk about Barbie first. We're going to talk about Barbie land. You're going to hear three of the key players in this movie, America Ferreira as Gloria, a mom who also just happens to work for Mattel. Uh, and uh, Margot Robbie is uh, the stereotypical Barbie. I mean, that's her her model n- number and name. Uh, and then uh, kind of a revelation, I thought, Ariana Greenblatt, I don't know this young actress at all, is Sasha. She's America Ferreira's daughter uh, and is maybe not initially as into all this stuff as she could be. Uh, you're going to hear them uh, as they've moved from our reality back to Barbie land. This is A1 Cat. I love rollerblades. Where are we going? Barbie land. What? Mom, are you really going to let Barbie take you and your tween daughter to an imaginary land? Yes, and you want to know why? Because I never get to do anything. I didn't even go on that cruise I won at your school raffle because I didn't have enough vacation days and your dad's allergic to sun. Oh. What about dad? You can't just leave him. He'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, he'll be fine. Ready for fun? All right, ready for fun? Uh, Carolyn Payne, uh, talk a little bit about how uh, Barbie was for you uh, and maybe your relationship to the material a little bit too. Uh, yeah, sure. I So I actually loved Barbie as a kid. 
Uh, and so Barbie has a special place in my heart. And I was cautiously very optimistic that this movie, I was going to love this movie. Um, and I liked it a lot. Like the first hour is, was spectacular. I was laughing. There are all these wonderful little references. If, if you are into Barbie lore and you played with Barbie, uh, the way, you know, things that you notice, uh, just these little details like when she opens when barbie opens her fridge and it's just stickers of the mm -hmm. food just like you had on the toy uh and every it was that kind of detailing and and the sense of humor um i was all in the second half of the movie does get a little bit uh chewy there's a lot of messages there's a lot of um you know resolution we have to get to it, it became this very big journey. And some of that is still fun. Um, but overall, I mean, I, I really can't wait till it's available for streaming to see it again. I may even go see it again in the theater because there's just so many fun little lines and jokes. And uh, I think that my processing of the emotional stuff in it will will be different the second time, too, because I'll know I'll know what I'm in for. But overall, it it delivered. It delivered on the pink glory fun of a Barbie movie that we needed. <laughs> yes. Uh, Anthony Lane had the line of the week. He said the first half hour of the movie is so pink, it's like being waterboarded with Pepto-Bismol. Um, <laughs> it's just tough to top that. But, uh, but Sean, yeah, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I, to me, America Ferreira is just amazing in this movie. And so is the girl that plays her daughter. And so is uh, Margot Robbie. She just brings a kind of knowingness to this kind of complicated idea. She's got to be this sort of clueless doll, but she's got to be gradually clued in, too. I think she does a great job. But I know you want to talk, perversely, about a guy, a guy named Ryan Gosling. And before you Ugh. do, uh, before you do, we'll, <laughs> uh, we'll hear a little bit uh, of Ryan Gosling as Ken, uh, along with, I think, th two other Kens, plus Margot Robbie uh, as Barbie. This is A2 Cat. Oh, looks like this beach was a little too much beach for you, Ken. If I wasn't severely injured, I would beat you off right now, Ken. I'll beat you off with you any day, Ken. Hold my ice cream, Ken. All right, Ken, you're on. Let's beach off. Anyone who wants to beach him off has to beach me off first. I will beach both of you off at the same time. But you don't even know how to beach yourself off. How are you going to beach oh, both of us off? That doesn't make sense. Ken, you why are you beach yourself off? You're going to beach Come both on, of us off? Beach. Nobody's going to beach anyone off. All right. We should just say, Sean, that this is both a movie that you're going to bring your seven-year-old daughter to and a movie you kind of shouldn't bring your seven-year-old daughter to. <laughs> there's, there's both of those things are going on, as you just heard in this particular clip. But I know you also want to talk uh, about Gosling and the work he does. The very, the very amazing, uh, sexy Ryan Gosling. Uh, I mean... Well, just to your point about bringing your seven-year-old and not want to bring your like, isn't that every movie now? Like, every Pixar movie is about, like, the existential crisis of, like, <laughs> thinking about death and also, like, it's colorful, like, cartoon emotions or whatever. So it's weird. But, um, I mean, Gosling's amazing. I, like, I, I hate to make a movie about and by women about Gosling, but it's like, he's so good. Like, he's so <laughs> game for this sort of role. Like, uh, like he's such a talented actor as, like, um, the serious actor, he could do, he has like every, has every pitch, you know what I mean? He, he got a fastball, he's got a curveball, he's got a changeup, like this guy can do it all. And like, I don't want to undercut the fact that Margot Robbie is amazing in this role because it's it's such a subtlety that she has to play. Like, it's it's, a, it's an easy role to overlook, which he's doing, but Gosling is written to go so big and he 
goes big and it never feels like this sometimes actors try to do this thing and like they're not naturally funny or they just don't know how to key in it key it in correctly so it's like it's like you could see that they're trying too hard it's just so natural for him like there's so many scenes where it's like it, i don't know he's perfect he's he's the greatest person to ever live i guess well i do want to say if you want to have somebody play ken uh a toy you you you're smart to talk to talk to the representation of a guy Ryan Gosling who got his start on the Mickey Mouse Club. Yes. I mean the singing and <laughs> dancing and all that stuff. You know he manages to, to be on the Mickey Mouse Club in this movie, but also the guy in the big shirt, the big short, who says that's a nice shirt. Do they make it for men? Uh, to a guy. So you know Rebecca, we have to talk about Greta Gerwig too. This is obviously mm. an, an auteur's work here. And somehow or other, she managed to do this incredibly subversive movie in which characters, particularly young Sasha, talk about the ways in which Barbie just isn't cool, you know, and is oppressive and is undermining in a movie that's sponsored and essentially produced by the toy company. What did Greta Gerwig say to people, you know, the people in management, the the Will Ferrell people in the top floor suite? But just talk a little bit about how how that's all worked out here so that it's, it's the opposite of an infomercial for the toy. Yeah. I mean, unlike Carolyn, I wasn't a huge Barbie person. And I actually mentioned to my therapist that I was going to see this movie. And she was like, what? Like, you don't strike me as somebody that would be at all interested in this. And I think that's what makes this movie so brilliant. And I think one of the marketing slogans, or at least it's one of the early trailers, like it doesn't matter if you love Barbie or if you hate Barbie, this movie is for you. And Greta Gerwig just absolutely I mean, I think the whole movie is just such an exposition of how everything, whether it's the female identity, Barbie, the patriarchy, has layers to it. It is complicated. It is messy. It is not one thing. And I think that movie really delivers this. So, and I stand by this. I mean, I kind of like a Barbie convert now and like want to get back into Barbies. <laughs> but I, I left that movie being like, even if you still hate Barbie, like there were so many beats this movie deploys that are enjoyable. I mean, it really, I think Greta Gerwig is the most interesting director on the scene right now. I I love what she's done. I loved what she did with Little Women. I think she's really good at taking a story that we think we're familiar with. We all think we know Barbie and turning it on its head. I thought it was a very self-aware film. I mean, they poke fun at one point of like how beautiful Margot Robbie is and how if you're trying to underscore the point that she's not got makeup on and is ugly now, like you've picked the wrong actress. I mean, it's just, there were so many little moments of self-reflection that I think Greta Gerwig herself injected into the film. I think she is just really one to watch. I I don't know. I think that there's a world in which she wins Best Director for this. I do. I, I think that it really is a masterstroke from her. And I can't imagine what the pitching process was like on this. And I know there was originally a version of this in which Amy Schumer was attached to it and dropped out of the project because she didn't think it was like feminist leading enough. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Greta Gerwig was, Gerwig was attached to that original script or not, but I think that she's really, it didn't turn into too much of like a, a feminist diatribe at any point, even though obviously it dispatches the patriarchy gloriously. So, I mean, she's just a star. Yeah. I, I do want to say that, um, speaking of Amy Schumer, I think this is maybe the first cinematic use of Kate McKinnon where I thought, okay, these are Ugh. the things that Kate McKinnon mm-hmm. can do. Yes. She plays, she plays yeah. weird. I, I think translating her stuff from SNL into cinema has yeah. not worked in a whole series of movies, including the Ghostbusters thing. And, but this, you know, you really kind of see the stuff that she can do. And so, James, it feels I, like 
like an SNL skit. Yes, it, yes, in, in, at times, and then at times not. But yes. So, James, and I'd just be lo- interested to hear anything you want to say about Barbie, but I do want to just have you comment a little bit also. There's a knowingness to this movie that starts in the first few, the first few seconds of this movie are, you know, a minute or two of 2001. I mean, there's basically, a, you know, the, the 2001 opening <laughs> is redone with dolls. And, and there's sort of an implied literateness to this whole movie. There's kind of things that you need to maybe be a you need to at least know a 12 year old girl to get some of the jokes but you kind of have to know a 50 year old man to get some of the other jokes <laughs> but so i'd love to hear anyway what your overall response was well i think it's very rare that you get that coming together of an extraordinary writing talent and an ability to draw together all of these different ideas while delivering the bad news for bigots I mean, uh, it, it, the, the the day is over, really, that that sort of repressive attitude can continue. And it comes from a place, I think there's such complexity to this, that it's the, it's the awareness of the filmmakers and the players and to bring all sorts of ideas together in a movie that theoretically the studios want to avoid all those very things like don't bring in those things and yet you have a very powerful woman in the film industry now Greta Gerwig who has really shown that this can be done and it comes from a place originally the Mattel company produced a sexist doll that that, that children loved that girls loved in particular um, and uh, some boys too. And um, it really uh, is interesting that the company pivoted a long time ago to the idea that this needed to develop, this needed to change. Um, and Ruth Handler's creation needed to grow and be, be sort of organic in, in the market. And I think that their decision to take a chance, if you like, on Greta Gerwig was actually a masterstroke that it means that everybody's talking about Barbie. And I mean, I, I have to say, I love the movie. I, I I had very few criticisms of it. And I was just thrilled to see America Ferreira take over the movie for a good section of it. Um, she played that part so well. And it's it spoke so much to the attempt to actually bring complexity and social awareness and social, <clears throat> the, the whole sense that, you could really evolve and explain things differently to children, but also bring in adults. I mean, there's so many things that really worked on that front. And so um, I, I, it, it's a turning point kind of thing. And it happens to be a turning point that also suddenly clicked for the idea of movie going. Yeah, there's, you know, I mean, this is a movie that begins with kind of a kind of a Kubrick homage. The second to last thing you hear in the movie is a United Farm Workers slogan. <laughs> Think about that. And in between, there's an evocation of, you know, a Gene Kelly dream dance sequence, except by a bunch of, you know, amped up militant Kens. Uh, and, I, you know, so Carol, uh, Carolyn, I should say that I was sort of in the same place you were. I The first hour and 20 minutes, I was entranced by this movie. I was laughing about as hard as I can laugh at a movie. I did feel as though at the end, I think I said in the emails, it was kind of like 20 or 30 minutes of listening to people at an ayahuasca retreat or talking about their <laughs> ayahuasca retreat. Everybody was talking about it, just the incredible insights that they'd had and stuff. And I thought the movie lost a little of its energy. But there are some interesting things, too. 
Like we, yeah, somebody else said, recently said, we kind of got Will Ferrell back. Like this is the Will Ferrell <laughs> with his pink drumsticks, and he can figure out how his key card works. This is the Will Ferrell we've been missing for a long time. But just say anything you want about it, Carol. Carolyn. Um, I love that you keep calling me Carol today. I yeah, you too. know what it is? Our, I don't our, know what this is. Our intern, is that your Barbie? Our, no, our intern Carol Chen is sitting over in that room there. I keep, oh, you know, all right, spacing all right, out. fair. Um, so yeah, I Will Ferrell was giving me uh President Business from Lego Movie yes. vibes here, and uh, it was like a reprise of that role, and it made me think how like the Lego Movie was such. That's another movie that took a toy. And really did something special with it in a movie yeah. that like adults who played with that toy can now have this movie and it kind of like brings them back like or, you know, makes them want to play with the toy like Rebecca now wanting to bust out some Barbie dolls. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but play date. <laughs> yeah, fight, fight that urge, Rebecca. Um, I, I think that this movie uh, was really at its best with all of these little, like, I mean, first of all, just the performances, like Will Ferrell, I have to go back to what Sean was saying about Ryan Gosling as Ken. Uh, I think he's gonna get an Oscar nomination for playing Ken, uh, but I really think that that can happen. Um, and Kate McKinnon, spectacular. America, just everyone, everyone in the movie. And Mike, Michael Sarah actually does. Oh Michael Sarah, we have and, to talk about Alan. Well, Alan and and Midge, I really felt. Oh like my we, god, so good. <laughs> like Midge, Midge was my favorite. I had um, a stack full of Midge dolls uh, as for redhead representation for myself as a child. I was very much even more into Midge, so I was a little crushed that we went with uh, you know discontinued pregnant Midge. Um, as the joke here, but still, I, I just, all of those little references, the part uh, where, you know, they're talking about Barbie and her existential crisis, and you hear the voiceover about, like, eating a bag of Starburst at, late at night until your mouth hurts, um, just uh, the existential wind down of Barbie and that feeling, um, the emotional connection that you could have with this movie while it was making you laugh, I think was really well done. Oh, but yeah. yes, I ahead. have to say that when I saw the movie, it was, I, I mean, I, I appreciated that, but I went to the bathroom right after the movie. And first of all, everyone at the movie theater was wearing pink, adorable, love that for them. But I went to the bathroom and all the women, as the women were coming to the bathroom, were shouting, hi, Barbie, at one another and wiping off their mascara from sobbing at this movie. Um, I'm interested to know if anyone on this panel had that experience. <laughs> but, you know, I think that that's what this movie really did kind of take you back to childhood and make you feel connected to something, whether it be the toy or relating to any of the characters uh, and, and, and the feelings. So I thought that that was pretty, that was not what I expected, but it was pretty cool. Well, at some point, Rebecca Castellani is going to walk into Starbucks and there's going to be an irrepressible thoughts of death Barbie that's being sold to adults at the cash register there. And we'll see how that, whether that's my money. There. Yes, get that, <laughs> get that Visa card out right now. Uh, all right, so we're going to take a little break here. And we're going to bring you way down. No, not necessarily. <laughs> but it's not going to be pink and fun. I can tell you that much. We'll talk about Oppenheimer after this.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Why isn't that Dua Lipa song the song of the summer? I don't get why that didn't happen. But um, all right. So we're talking about Oppenheimer now. Our panel is still Rebecca Castellani, James Hanley, Sean Murray, Carolyn Payne. Uh, Oppenheimer is the 12th film written and directed by Christopher Nolan, based on the book American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin. Uh, it, it, as I said before, did $82 million in its first weekend, which is probably not you know what you would have projected on other, in other situations. It was shot in a combination of IMAX 60 millimeter and 65 millimeter large format film, the first movie ever shot in IMAX black and white film. Uh, the IMAX prints are reportedly 11 miles long and weigh 600 pounds, so roughly the shape and size of the atomic bomb. Uh, so um, it's a it's three hours long. Uh, Sean Murray, get us started here. I know you liked the film. Uh, tell us what you liked about it. What I liked about it, I mean, first and foremost, just like uh, I feel like it's everything Nolan's been doing in his whole career all put together, you know, the, you know, kind of ambitious man, you know, fighting against like the world, not wanting him to achieve what he wants to do. The the time jumps, the, you know, the fascination with, with science and pseudoscience and like visual, like the visual language, all that stuff coming together in such a beautiful way. Like there's shots in this movie that are just so gorgeous that just have nothing. And like, there's like, like, People get so upset about like uh, filmmakers like Nolan, uh, who are all like, "Oh, you gotta watch movies in theaters," and I want to shoot on film, and it's a, the lenses are important, and it's like, yeah, maybe that stuff is a little like pretentious. But then you see like shots of the New Mexico desert that are just like the widest, largest image you've ever seen in your entire life, and you're like, "Well, yeah, this is why this guy talks about this this stuff. This is why they care about it." And then not to mention, um, I mean, it's like it's a movie where you're like you know that the atomic bomb is created because you live in the future like me and uh that you know the test is going to be successful but the 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 second hour of this movie when you're waiting like when they're like uh ramping up to to the trinity test in the desert is like one of the most tense experiences of my life and it's so good and it's it's it the movie is so effective because it kind of plays on the idea that like you're kind of rooting for oppenheimer as a viewer even though as a person living again in the future like me uh, that like this is the worst thing that anyone could possibly create, and yet you're like, hey, the military is kind of trying to not help him out. Why are they doing that? Let him build the bomb. And then you're like, wait, he's building the worst bomb. So I don't know. It's amazing. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I think they do capture the mindset, though. The mindset is, for most of the time they're working on the bomb, Hitler is rather active in Europe, uh, and they sure as hell don't want him to have a bomb. They find out the Germans have split the atom. They, you know, um, uh, by the time they get the bomb ready, Hitler's basically done. But you, you sort of understand why there would be some urgency and maybe even a feeling of righteousness about the whole project. I should say that the cast is Killian Murphy uh, as uh, Oppenheimer, Emily Blunt as Kitty Oppenheimer, Matt Damon as Leslie Groves, the general who oversaw the project. Robert Downey Jr. is Louis Strauss, who becomes kind of a rival and kind of enemy uh, of Oppenheimer way, way uh, beyond the time of the making of the bomb, starting in 54, I think. Um, Florence Pugh is Gene Tatlock, a psychiatrist with whom uh, Oppenheimer has a, a love affair. And then there's like a million little tiny pieces of major casting. People like Rami Malek have tiny little roles. Mm-hmm. Kenneth Branagh is amazing as Niels Bohr. Tom Conti is Albert Einstein. <laughs> so, so Rebecca, I know this is what you couldn't possibly love this movie uh, as much as you loved Barbie, but did, did you love it at all? Oh, I feel like I'm going to get drawn and quartered. I didn't love it. I obviously it's a spectacular piece of film, like everything Christopher Nolan does. I am just fascinated by the way he's just centers audio and everything he does, whether it's that haunting interstellar score or the Dunkirk bombs. I think that's really you know one of his tenets of filmmaking. But I think I, really, I see what you did there. Tenets of filmmaking. Yeah, you know, I try. Um, I I do think it really. I struggled with this just from like a comparison standpoint because I enjoyed Barbie so much, and then I I did not realize this movie was three hours long until I showed up at the theater, and that really didn't help anything because it's long. It is a <laughs> slog. Also, I'm getting old. It was loud. I know it was marketed as loud. I know it's about the atomic bomb, but I was not expecting to like have my hands clamp over my ears for like a solid twenty minutes in this movie. So it's just like sensorily a little a lot for me. And I found that it definitely could have had some significant cuts. Um, whereas I felt unlike, you know, you and uh, Carolyn, I, I thought that Barbie was kind of beat for beat perfect. I didn't have the same objections to the back half. But, you know, I checked my phone for the first time 45 minutes in, not a good sign. And I just felt like it was like an act of labor for me to get through this whole movie. But that's not to take away from the performances for the most part, I thought were fantastic. Sound engineering, as I said, was great. Beautiful shots, as Sean said. I just felt like cohesively as a film, I far more enjoyed other Nolan works. Like The Prestige is one of my favorite movies. Inception was masterful. I like Interstellar. It just felt, I actually read, there was a Vanity, or no, it was The New Yorker that called this like a History Channel movie. And that does feel slightly harsh given how you know cinematic it is. But it, there was elements of it where I felt like I wish this had been a miniseries or I wish it has been divided up part one, part two in some ways. It just felt like I'd lost steam so quickly. And then even like the anticipation of the bomb, I was just not as in it as I was with Barbie. So this also, you know, it's not really a, a movie for me. Like I, this is not something that I would seek out. I, I don't have got, as everyone does, very complicated feelings about glorifying. Not that the movie was doing that, but I think some people kind of take that away Weapons of mass destruction. I thought it could have focused on that more and less on, you know, the spectacle. I thought the high points were the science. I think, you know, Christopher Nolan does a really, really good job of making nerdy science very accessible. So those are things I liked, but on the whole, comparatively, 
not my favorite. Okay, so before we go to James on this, I think there'll be a sort of an opposing viewpoint, a genially opposing viewpoint. Um, let's hear a little clip. Uh, this is Robert Downey Jr. as the aforementioned Louis Strauss, uh, who's sort of, you know, a, a guy who's with a kind of long career in presidentially appointed uh, government posts. Uh, he wants to be the Secretary of Commerce, I believe. Killian Murphy as uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer uh, and Dane DeHaan as Kenneth Nichols. Uh, here we go, B1. Thanks for convening a short notice. I can't believe it. Well, here we are. This is atomic test. The Russians have a bomb. We're supposed to be years ahead of them, but... What were you guys doing in Los Alamos? And how many people were in these, uh, open discussions? Too many compartmentalization was supposed to be the protocol. We were in a race against the Nazis. So now the race is against the Soviets. Not unless we started. Robert, they just fired a starting gun. What's the nature of the device they detonated? Data indicates it may have been a plutonium implosion device. Like the one you built at Los Alamos. We should say, I think we had to rip that from the trailer. There's a hard way to get a, not, not many ways to get a clip from this uh, thing right now. So I'm not sure that the music matches up with actually what's going on in the movie. But so, James, first of all, I just want to say thank you because I watched the movie at uh, Cine Studio at Trinity College, a, a theater you essentially built along with other people. Uh, it was so great. I didn't see it with the 75 millimeter film stuff because uh, they weren't, I think there were only 19 screens, screens in the country that got that thing. Uh, but seeing it in widescreen, to Sean's point, about, for example, the desert was such a thrill. And for me, it was a real thrill to see, like a nerd geek wonk thrill, to see some of these characters whom I've studied over the years brought to life on the screen. But I'd love to hear your thoughts, James. Well, it's really interesting from a technical point of view, me being a technical geek who's, uh, you know, pursued a lifetime of trying to make pictures bigger and louder and more enveloping and and actually uh Christopher Nolan is probably the closest person I can think of who really understood that Stanley Kubrick did as well but I think actually that um Nolan went beyond that um and one of the curious paradoxes about that to me is that um both of these films Barbie and Oppenheimer Oppenheimer is uh, is really a spectacle in in IMAX for example running on the giant IMAX screens um it really grabs you with these incredible close-ups but one of the extraordinary paradoxes about it to me is that I think it's possible to experience the journey of that film very vividly in uh even shown in digital cinema and 35 millimeter it's such a strong film to me that does so many things. First of all, I think very importantly, it really refreshes the discussion about American amnesia, about history, mm. and the willingness to lie about history and to forget about difficult things. And one of the greatest things I think this film does, aside from being an exciting journey, is that I think that perhaps some people will start thinking about the decisions that were taken at that time and where we ended up with uh, with hundreds of thousands of people incinerated by these bombs. 
And I think there's arguments people have been making for many, many years. But one of the problems is that Americans generally are not well educated about history. And when you get a popular movie coming along, which may not be a blockbuster on the scale of Barbie, it is really engaging a lot of people and it actually tells a real story and it tells some of the details like one of the fascinating things i think is the the character of louis strauss um he makes a point of having his name pronounced strauss so that it doesn't sound like strauss and people mm. think he was jewish uh i mean lots of little details pour out of that movie um, and uh, the conversation with Albert Einstein, all of these things actually fit into this immensely complex story that's being told. And of course, then there's also for geeks like me, I went to Providence Place, the, the one of the best IMAXs in the country, showing a uh, horizontal IMAX 15 perforation 70 millimeter. <laughs> uh, you can tell I'm a geek. You know, it's, just, it's um, like you're talking about a street drug you just bought. But anyway, <laughs> exactly, go ahead. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I I, I think. Uh, Carolyn, first of all, you know, I don't know if you remember the Bailey Gizmert character that uh, that Heidi Gardner used to do on Saturday Night Live, the kind of high school uh, film critic, and she would get kind of weepy near the end of her reports, and she would say stuff like, and I had to go see Oppenheimer with my dad, uh, <laughs> which is exactly what you did. You went to see Oppenheimer with your dad. How'd that go? I did. I took my dad to this movie as a thank you. Uh, he'd been helping me out a lot with some stuff around my house uh, the past week. And uh, I also thought, like, since, you know, we were doing the show, he'd be a great person to see it with, because in case I uh, got utterly lost, he could help me out because he <laughs> majored in physics and political science. So this movie was driven straight for. Uh, um, so uh, I will with my he's the movie. Um, he, I did not told him that it was three hours long and that very my scheduling so taking man in his 70s to an 11 p.m showing of this movie irresponsible on part but uh he 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 and i just felt like we were wowed by the cinematic prowess of this movie like it is so well done from a filmmaking standpoint. Like this is gonna be studied in film class for years to come. Christopher Nolan is asked here. There are so many uh the soundtrack is is incredible. Uh the sound design, the acting performances, everything is just awesome. But my dad and I both felt like this could have used some editing to take it down. I think we could have had even two and a half hours of awesomeness. Mm -hmm. Uh would have would have been really would have helped a lot. Um, I think there comes a point where it's like, yeah, this is great, but you start losing appreciation for things if there is kind of that that length. Absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, I I could have cut. I loved this movie, but I could have cut twenty minutes out of it. I could even tell yeah, you some easy. of the twenty minutes I could cut out, cut of, and that would have made it different. Although I thought, Sean, that one of the things this movie did a little bit differently from some longer movies is I thought there was a little bit of a valley kind of in the middle around maybe two hours and ten minutes, two hours and twenty minutes, and then it revved back up the kind of drama uh, of the attempt to tear Oppenheimer apart, to discredit him, to humiliate him was done so well that my heart's started beating faster again. But um, I'd love for you to comment on that or 
to James's point about the way the decision was taken to use the bomb and what happened, I thought really one of the great little buttons in this movie was Gary Oldman. <laughs> Incredible performance as Truman, who basically sees the moral quandaries presented by Oppenheimer as, I think he calls him a crybaby or something. <laughs> something. I don't know. So whatever you want to talk about. Uh, I think I can address both. Um, to the point about the sort of around the two-hour, ten-minute mark, I think that's kind of a natural, uh, like, emotional thing that happens in the movie. Like, I think it's intentional where it's like, okay, all this buildup, and then for Oppenheimer, it, as well as the audience, it's like, well, he did, the, he made the bomb, and then, like, well, I'm not even getting, like, uh, like uh, a heads up that they're going to use it. Like, he, he kind of gets, like, shut out of the whole sort of process, and it's a it's a sort of like nadir for him emotionally, and then after that, then it picks up with the with the whole like the the, the confirmation hearing and all that stuff, and it's it's kind of ramps that back up. I think I think I can I can understand the complaint about why it like it emotionally kind of doesn't work for some people, where it's like oh this is all this build up, and now it's like this kind of slow drama about like this non trial, and then it kind of ramps back up in a way that you probably don't care about as much, but I kind of, it kind of works for me. Cause it's like, it, it, it kind of mirrors his emotional journey as to uh, the Truman part of it. I thought that was hilarious. Like uh, it's darkly hilarious where he, he literally calls him a crybaby. And he like, he said, I have blood <laughs> in my hand and he pulls out a handkerchief and he just waves it at him. Like wipe it off with this. Like, I, I think that's, um, I think it kind of speaks to exactly what the, the, the U S military U S government's, uh, feeling about all of it was especially like for, from a guy like Truman it's like this is my moment in history I was the guy who dropped the atomic bomb and this essentially ended World War II even though many uh would argue that it would have ended anyway um and it's 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 something you have to grapple with and it's even like down to uh Oppenheimer like wanting to be involved in the like announcement or like you know being given a heads up that the bombs being dropped like, like you're killing tens of thousands of people like I, I it's kind of like to feel bad about like, hey, you didn't tell me about it. like it's kind of weird, you know? It's like it's a it's an emotional. But this is my uh, murder. Like, yeah, exactly. It's like I, I want credit for the and then I don't. I think I think it's 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 complex. I think maybe maybe it was too long. I don't care. Like I, I, like, <laughs> I don't I don't think it's wrong to care. These petty movies I feel like might have been too long. But like I one I knew it was going to be hours. Two because I knew it was going to be three hours. I'm paying for three hours. I want all three of those hours, and I got every last <laughs> drop out of it. Um, I, I thought it was. I thought it was like, yeah, maybe it was a little, little long. But it's like I, I don't, I don't begrudge it for that. Like, I, there are moments you could have cut out, but I, I do. I, I enjoyed all of it. I, it's, it's not a perfect movie. People like uh, criticize like the sex scenes, which I thought were. I actually thought it was really funny. The, the whole like. Uh, when he was Tatlock and he read, he read the the thing from the Bhagavad Gita and like it was like oh that's kind of hokey like it's hilarious he can well, be funny I don't yeah. know it's, I, it's, I think Chris it's Chris that, that's a little problem for Christopher Nolan I mean he kind of famously doesn't know what to do with women in his movies and he doesn't know what to do with <laughs> sex in his movies there's actually a pretty funny scene in Bojack Horseman where uh, Mr. Peanut Butter and Bojack and Mr. Peanut Butter is talking about maybe his problem with women is a Christopher <laughs> Nolan problem um, anyway we're going to take a quick break we're going to come back we're going to make some recommendations with this great panel so stay with us. (laughs) 
time to make some recommendations, but first time to thank Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer. Jonathan McPants is the producer of The Nose pretty much all the time, including today. We're going to make some recommendations right now. James Hanley, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. What are you going to recommend to us? Well, I may have mentioned it years ago, but I just wanted to remind people um, it is at Coventry Market, which is a wonderful market, but there's a farm, Purity Farm, which has, uh, produces the most incredible uh, vegetables and uh, uh, been working at this for many, many years. And I just like to be to go and find these wonderful things where they actually produce farm products without all of the chemicals and pesticides. And I think they do a wonderful job. Um, and the other thing um, I would, uh, I know it's a lot to ask, but I would say that people who are interested really in the history of uh, the atomic bomb and the original book that the film Oppenheimer is based on by Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin, mm -hmm. it's a really amazing read and it's worth sticking with. It's a big book, but it really does educate you about how government works and how and many of the things that we're surrounded with now, it's an extraordinary piece. And um, for what it's worth, I would say I, I am a geek and I didn't think for a minute that three hours was too long. I thought that three hours in that film really made you think about the issues. And this book really helps. All right. Great recommendations. Rebecca Castellani, what would you like to recommend? So I actually just recently moved on to a regenerative farm in Litchfield. So I am getting accustomed to Litchfield County and all the different little towns in the area. And I saw Barbie at the Bantam Cinema, which was just the cutest little place I've ever been. It opened in 1929. So it's been around for quite some time, had many different stewards, super cute. There's only two screens very intimate. I think there was only about 50 seats in the theater I saw, which allowed me to sort of experience watching Barbie with all the people I was in the theater with in a very intimate way. They serve drinks. I just can't say enough about how quaint and lovely this little cinema is. So if you're looking to support a small business and not necessarily go to the Apple cinemas of the world and you're in Litchfield, check out the Bantam Cinema. Yeah, I've seen many movies there uh, and it's very, very nice. You have to get there kind of early because because there's so yeah. few, few seats, it sells out very easily. Yeah. Uh, Carolyn Payne, what are you going to recommend? Okay, uh, so in line with the Barbie movie, I 100% recommend if you have a record player like me, uh, getting the Barbie movie soundtrack on LP. The record is bright pink, so it's just, it's adorable. You Fine. feel like Barbie. Yes, and uh, the soundtrack to that is so killer. Uh, during the break, Rebecca and I were going back and forth that we were dancing in our chairs to um, to Dance the Night Away by Dua Lipa, which I think is my song of the summer. Yes. Uh, so I recommend the Barbie uh, LP soundtrack in bright pink. Also on Amazon Prime, The Thief Collector is a documentary about um, this husband-wife art, uh, art thief team. And uh, it's a really fascinating documentary if you like true crime. But also the reenactments are acted by Glenn Howerton from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So how can you miss on this? You have true crime and Glenn Howerton. Uh, and it's uh, done by a female director, Allison Otto. Um, so 10 out of 10 recommend that too. Wow. See the name of the title again? The Thief Collector. The Thief Collector. All right. Uh, Sean Murray, what are you going to recommend to us? I'm going to recommend a lovely novel I read uh, last week called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, uh, Z-E-V-I-N. 
it's a it's a novel about um, two friends who in the late '90s uh, sort of start a video game company together, and then the journey of well, three friends actually uh, they started a video game company, and the journey uh, of the company and their friendships as they evolve uh, over the next uh, 20, 25 years. Uh, very sweet story about like just like like finding your soulmate sometimes whether it's romantically or professionally creatively and um like the journey that love can take uh and like the tribulation of it. it's uh really good novel oh great so um I, I don't have that much to endorse or recommend today partly because this week included uh the two movies that we watched the 837 page biography of j edgar hoover uh by beverly gage which won the pulitzer prize which i actually do recommend it's a tremendous book and there's just you know you can just kind of play around with it and pick little parts of it and read it and look at the pictures and it's not as intimidating as it sounds but it is just a terrific book i do want to quickly mention if you're listening on friday or listening to this before you've listened to the thing i'm about to mention uh we're going to do we've actually talked about barbie a few times uh, over the course of, of our four 14 years on the air, including a 60th anniversary uh, Barbie show where we talked a lot about Ruth Handler, the person who was played by Rhea Perlman in this movie. We didn't mention that in our conversations. I think she and that kind of Sistine Chapel moment at the end is really pretty tremendous. Uh, But anyway, yeah, we'll be talking about that. We'll be talking, I think Carolyn might have participated in our discussion of uh, when the new Kens came out a few years ago and there's the man bun Ken and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) We're going to resurrect parts of that conversation. Some of what we did today will get added to that. All of that will be on the air at noon tomorrow and available on our podcast feed. We are going to end the show today. Uh, on a somewhat sad note, no, not on a somewhat, on a very sad note, there's nothing somewhat about it, uh, uh, Sinead O'Connor died this Ugh. week. Uh, uh. Yes, uh, she was only 56 years old. Uh, she died uh, uh, on Wednesday. We still, still, I don't think, know too much about this, but uh, but I'm sure more will come out as we go along here. Um, she was a very powerful singer. Um, whatever you thought of the way she lived her life and some of the positions she took. And I mean, she was, there's just no taking away from the emotive power of her singing. So we're going to hear a little bit uh, at the end here of all apologies. Here we go. Bye. Bye.